Welcome to the top-rated and award-nominated Grad School Femtoring Podcast, the place for first-gen BIPOCs to learn about all things grad school, personal development, and sustainable productivity. This is Dr. Yvette Martinez-Vu, and I will be serving as your Femtor, providing you with tips and tricks and everything else you need to know to successfully navigate grad school and beyond. For over 13 years, I've been empowering first-gen students of color along their academic and professional journeys, and I'm really excited to support you too. Welcome back everyone to another episode of the Grad School Fem Touring Podcast. This is your host, Dr. Yvette, and today we are going to be talking about the pursuit of equity and justice in Hispanic-serving institutions. And I'm excited because I've got la mera mera, Dr. Gina Ann Garcia here. She is a professor in the Berkeley School of Education. Full professor, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Um, Dr. Gina's research centers on issues of equity and diversity in higher education with an emphasis on understanding how Hispanic-serving institutions, HSIs, embrace and enact an organizational identity for serving minoritized populations. She is the author of Becoming Hispanic-Serving Institutions, Opportunities for Colleges and Universities, as well as transforming Hispanic serving institutions for equity and justice. She is also the host of the podcast, Que Pasa HSIs. Welcome to the podcast, Doctora Dina. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thank you for that. And thank you for having me. I'm excited to talk to you today. Yay, me too. So I would love for folks to um, hear a little bit more about you, about your background, your black story. How did you become who you are? Just let us know the details. I know it's a big, <laughs> it's a big question, but <laughs> I would love yeah. to hear a little bit more about you. <laughs> oh, how did I become who I am? That that right there. <laughs> Whew, we could, we'll be here a while. <laughs> um, but I mean, I'll just go ahead and uh, you know talk a little bit about my just journey and through higher education and how I got to where I am today. Um, I am born and raised Cali girl, Cali all the way through and through. And I, yes, I am returning actually to California to for the professorship at Berkeley, UC Berkeley, uh, starting fall 2023. So uh, really excited to go home. I've uh, been away from home for 10 years in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, doing um, important work, doing research at the University of Pittsburgh. And the University of Pittsburgh provide, has provided me with this opportunity in this space to do research. Um, but the location has not been the best. Um, so I'm excited to go back to California because I work with Hispanic serving institutions and a majority of Hispanic serving institutions are in the West and particularly the Southwest um, and a lot in California. Um, so it's just for my research, uh, professionally, it's a good move to go back home. Um, but it's also good for my family because we will get to go, go back, uh, return to where we're from. Um, I actually was born and raised in uh, Ventura, California, uh, actually Ventura County, California, actually Simi Valley, California. And I went to Cal State University Northridge for undergrad. From there, I went to the University of Maryland for my um, master's degree. That was the first time I left California. And then I did my PhD at UCLA, um, the final the final stop before the terminal degree, which of course is a PhD. Um, and then I've been in Pittsburgh ever since um, doing research with HSIs. 
Wow, that's a lot of uh, hopping from mm -hmm. <laughs> from CSUN to University of Maryland to UCLA and um, Penn, you said, or Wait, Pitt, University Pitt, of Pittsburgh. Sorry, sorry. Yeah. I'm trying okay. to remember all of them. Pittsburgh <laughs> and now Berkeley. <laughs> and now Berkeley. It's so much hopping around. Yeah. That's uh that's the academic life, you know. Like if you choose this life, that that it sort of comes with it if you are willing to do that. And not everybody is. Um, it is a big sacrifice. Uh it's it's hard on the person, the individual, and it's hard on the family. So it's not for everybody. I don't recommend it for everybody. It's um, it's a lot. It is. It really is. You have to personally be ready for um, all that jumping around. So I'm ready to settle <laughs> in California and be there for a while and see my kids off to college from there and, you know, just do good work. That's great. That's great. What a beautiful homecoming too, especially at such a stage, you know, a milestone in your career too. Yeah. So your career, uh, you've been studying this for a while, studying HSIs for a while. Um, my audience is primarily undergraduates and graduate students who are first-gen BIPOCs. And for folks who are less familiar with the term HSI, can you explain how you define it and how HSIs differ from other institutions? Yes. Okay. So Hispanic Serving Institutions. Um, they are one of several types of minority serving institutions. So the Higher Education Act of 1965 um, set up the, the legislation behind um, HSIs and other minority serving institutions. I think the most common well-known MSI is historically black colleges and universities. Uh, I think that's pretty common knowledge, right? We pretty much know that. We have a vice president, uh, Kamala Harris, who is a graduate of an HBCU. like it's common knowledge, right? Like we know HBCUs, um, historically black colleges and universities, the history is the important part of that, that they have been founded uh, founded in, in uh, the 1800s, late 1800s. Um, a couple were founded actually even before the Civil War, but most came in after Civil War. Um, and particularly the 1890s is uh, sort of lays really important solid foundation because 1890 sets the the place where um, the federal government basically put funding into HBCUs, but only if it was, well, it was actually land grants, the land grant or the lab, land grab as, as we refer to them because it was a land grab at the time, right? A lot of um, stealing of land uh, as we this country was established. Um, but the land grant institutions in the South, um, the, the policy was that you could establish a land grant institution if you established a separate but equal one. And that's where um, the land grants in uh, the South come from um, because white people didn't want black people in colleges and universities with them. So really important history because it was set at a time of segregation, right? Like that mm -hmm. historically black colleges were necessary um, because black people could not, African people of African descent, really formerly enslaved people, really. I mean, these are the immediate descendants of enslaved people and or formerly uh, enslaved people themselves that were entering HBCUs. So such an important history. It's not the history that HSIs have, not even close. Mm -hmm. um, so we can't say it's the same exact um, sort of important historical foundational moment. HSIs um, have a different history. They come about through legislation that calls for a certain percentage of students enrolling. Um, so it's 25%, 25% Hispanic, 
enrolling. So anybody who identifies, checks the box as Hispanic, then goes into the counting of the 25%. So you have to check the box. That's the other complicated thing, because we all know we're, we can't decide how we want to define these days. Yeah. <laughs> uh, if you fall in the H, you're like all over the place, right? We're, we're all like trying to figure out what's the best uh, uh, box for us, right? And I think the reality is there's not one box for, for us. Um, but you got to check that box and then you then fall into the 25%. Um, now, the, the HSI designation did come about through advocacy. So folks that were working at uh, institutions that had large enrollment of Hispanic population in the like 1970s, like early 1980s, which isn't a lot of colleges and universities, primarily in Texas, community colleges in Texas. Um, that's where a lot of the advocacy was coming from, actually, um, where these college presidents and these advocates for education could see that there was this population that was really... Um, being underserved, right? That uh, Hispanic Latino Latino people and Latina people at the time were not being adequately served by colleges and universities and not even enrolling really um, at that time. So the legislation comes out through advocacy in that way that there are colleges and universities that are enrolling this greater percentage um, and some of them to, at a high percent, almost like an HBCU where it's a majority uh, Latino population. And there are HSIs like that, like University of Texas El Paso, almost all Hispanic, Latino, Latine identified. Um, and so that's where the legislation comes from, establishes this body um, of legislation where funding becomes available for these institutions. And so the funding is competitive. So HSIs are enrollment driven. You got to hit the 25%. Once you hit the 25%, you then can apply for the competitive grants. So you don't automatically get funding, which is also different from HBCUs. Um, the HBCUs do have a, a designated uh, line of funding um, as they should, and HSIs do not. They have a designated line of funding, but you have to competitively ap apply for it. Um, so that's a whole debate to be had in its own because there's uh, a growing number of HSIs that are coming in. Um, we're now at 571 uh, as of fall 2022, 571 eligible HSIs. Um, and the data are showing that maybe half actually get the grants um, on any one year or might have an actual HSI grant on any one year, um, leaving a whole lot of institutions that are not actually getting any funding um, to do this additional work yet they're still enrolling the 25% Hispanic. Um, the other piece of the designation is that the, there's a high enrollment of low income or Pell Grant eligible or federal grant eligible. They, there's four different grants that you can uh, fall under. And so then you have a high enrollment of Latine and low income. So there's an intersection there, which we know creates bigger barriers for people, not only to be a person of color, um, but also low income in this country creates a, a number of educational challenges. Um, so institutions that are rolling students who are underserved historically, um, yet not necessarily getting the funding to do the survey. So that's the technical <laughs> federal designation. Right. So, okay. You, you told us the technical and then also the distinctions between the different institutions and how some of them may or may not have access to the same kind of resources, the same kind of funding. Some of them might not have funding at all. I know you've delved into these topics more deeply in your books. And so I, I want to kind of go back in time to how did you even arrive at like developing this interest 
and HSIs. And then hopefully we can talk a little bit more about your recent book and how, you know, how your work has transformed uh, since then. Yes, for sure. Um, so <laughs> I actually am a a graduate of an HSI. Um, now, when I went to Cal State Northridge, it was an emerging HSI. Um, that was a while back. Uh, HS Cal State Northridge has already been an HSI for probably 20 years. Um, so we were right at the cusp, like borderline when I was there. Um, I didn't know that. I didn't know what an HSI was. I didn't know what an emerging HSI was. I had no idea because this isn't something most institutions uh, use. They don't use it for recruitment. They don't talk about it. You don't learn about it in orientation. They don't blast it on the walls. It's not on the website, especially not 20 years ago when I was in college. Um, more institutions are starting to actually embrace it in that sort of way. Um, so we're seeing a progression of that, but definitely not when the designation first came out, which was, um, you know, back in 1990s, mid middle 1990s. Um, but I still think a lot about my own undergraduate um, experience and the significance is so powerful that like I do write about it, always referring mm -hmm. back to my own, my own right experience. Um, and just even to rewind a little bit more, um, I did mention I was from Simi Valley, California, which for those yeah. folks that are, are from California know, um, that's a pretty, like a predominantly white um, city. So I grew up in a predominantly white space as a Latina, very strong, like Mexican-American roots. I knew who I was my whole life. I never questioned um, anything about my own identity. Me and my mom were just talking about this a couple of days ago, actually, um, how it was, you know, it's like, it was just, it's, it was in, it was in us, right? It was, it was mm -hmm. my, my embodiment, my identity was a part of who I was. Um, and so I knew I very, was very aware of being in a very white space. Um, mm -hmm. And when you're in a white space and you're either black or brown, right? Because the, the black and Latinos, we all hung together um, and also Filipinos, um, also brown, right? Also <laughs> brown Asians, um, black and brown folks, we know when we're in white spaces because everybody tells us, right? Police tell you, teachers tell you, your peers tell you, random people shouting at you at the gas station tell you, right? Like, it's just weird. It's like, why am I su such a threat, right? Um, so when you grow up in a predominantly white space, you know that you're not white if you're not white. Um, and so I did. I always knew. I was very, it was very aware. Um, and and as Gloria, um, not, no, I was going to say the wrong uh, person. Um, the, the book, Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together, Beverly Tatum, um, Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together at the Cafeteria, that made sense to me because we did all sit together. Mm -hmm. um, me and all the, you know, all my, my Black and brown friends, we all sat together, we all knew, um, and we sort of uh, took care of each other, right? We we protected ourselves um, in those predominantly white spaces. And as as did me and my family, I grew up with a lot of cousins. Um, a lot of my family grew up in the same city with me. So we, we knew. So when I got to Cal State Northridge, it was very different. Like I wasn't in a predominantly white space anymore. And that's not always the case. I think my experience is, is kind of backwards from a lot of folks because mm -hmm. of racial uh, segregation um, and housing segregation in particular, most people grew up in predominantly, you know, if they're a person of color, they grow up with a lot of people of color segregated yeah. in those spaces. That's you, mm -hmm. yeah? Yeah, I'm from the Valley. I know CSUN. I grew up yes. in a predominantly <laughs> brown community. <laughs> exactly. So most folks grow up in the predominantly like brown community or predominantly black community or mixing, right? Particularly in California, we see a lot of black and brown, right? Together. Mm -hmm. um, 
And then you go to college and college is predominantly white because most colleges and universities are still predominantly white. Um, so I had this really different experience and I entered college and it was different, right? Like I knew like it felt like people of color and like I immersed myself, my, myself in like all the things Latino, all the things Chicano, really, uh, Chicano studies, uh, Chicano student organizations, uh, Chicano student programming, when they, anything, right? Like I, I just was ready to just eat it up. I was, I wanted to absorb it all because I, it was new to me, right. To have so many people that were more like me that were my peers, uh, because high school wasn't like that. And so it was, it was important for me. So I think of HSI as that, right. That like HSI's uh, should be spaces where people of color feel like they belong, feel mm -hmm. like they can find who they are, they can explore their identity, they can take ethnic studies, they can take Chicano studies, they can do the Chicano Latino graduation, right? Rasa grad, whatever mm -hmm. you call it. All of those things matter a lot. Um, and they matter to me a lot. Um, and, and the reality is, like you said, like you grew up in a probably people of color space, when you enter colleges and universities, even HSIs, they still feel, you know, white to people. And so that's where the research is at. There are people mm. are still like, nah, they still feel white. Uh, Especially if you white. just barely made it. <laughs> yes, exactly. And so, and so there, that's how I think about HSIs, right? As these spaces that like, what if they become like, I call them spaces of liberation, right? Educational liberation, mm -hmm. where you can be like, feel like you belong, feel like you can, you can accelerate where you can be liberated and your own, your own identities, all that kind of stuff happens at HSIs. And so that's where, I, where my research really draws from that belief. I call it freedom dream in my new book, that freedom mm -hmm. dream that colleges and universities can become that. Um, and I mean, HBCUs in many ways are that, right? And so right. if there's something we could strive to, it's that, but HSIs are not that at, mm. at this time. <laughs> not yet. Can you say a little bit more about your recent book about, you know, you, you call it, yeah, transforming. So transforming mm -hmm. HSIs for equity and justice. What are some of the uh, you know, noted findings or recommendations or just things that you want folks to be aware, takeaways from the book. Um, and we'll put a link to the book in the show notes too so folks can can read it for sure, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, so, I mean, I'll, I'll, let me back up a little bit. So the original question I think you asked me was about HSIs, how are they defined, right? Yeah. Um, and I think you wanted me to define also how I define them, right? So let me, yes. let me define them first. Yes, um, because that was a very technical, that was the de technical definition, right? That I mm -hmm. gave the federal de definition. Now I've given my vision of HSIs. That's where all my research comes in. Mm -hmm. So my research defines HSIs outside of, beyond, I say beyond the federal designation. Um, the federal designation is those things, right? You, you low, in, low in high enrolling of low-income students, high enrolling of Hispanic students, check the box, boom, you be, can become an HSI. That's it. There's mm -hmm. no meaning attached to it. The federal government mm -hmm. doesn't attach meaning to it. Um, the people don't attach meaning to it mm -hmm. if they don't. And I say that because people are starting to make meaning of HSI in really powerful ways within HSIs, but not at all 571, not by any means. Um, and so the research really is the meaning making. Um, I've spent a lot of time meaning making, dreaming, mm. researching, collecting data and writing and developing frameworks for how we can think about HSI beyond the federal designation. 
And so once you get the federal designation, what do you do with it? That's where all my research comes mm. in. And so people draw on, on the books, right? The, the books, the articles, the pot, my own podcast, right? Capaz HSIs, because they're trying to make meaning of HSI beyond the federal designation. And so there's people that are on the ground. Um, I was a Title V implementer, which is the HSI grants um, at Cal State Fullerton, actually. And I remember trying to do this work and not having frameworks. And so mm. when you don't have frameworks, you're just trying to make meaning of it on your own. What I've done with my own research and my scholarship is make meaning for people and give people a way to, to make meaning of it. Um, and now what's happening is every, you know, people are making meaning of it in their own way. Like I've given people a framework and now they're like, okay, now what if it was also this? Yeah. And what if it was also that? And what if we did this? And we're also doing this. And is that serving this? Right? Yeah. Like, because I talk about servingness and I'm like, yeah, Ooh, yeah. Let's say more about that. What is servingness? And then maybe some examples of, of what, you don't have to name the entities, but like what it can look like, like you said, mm -hmm. when you define it beyond the designation, what are some examples of what HSIs can look like? Yeah, for sure. The servingness is a framework. So that was one of the, I'm a, a frameworks kind of uh, <laughs> scholar. I've got all kinds of frameworks, but that one has become pretty important for people. Um, it's basically elevating the S and HSIs. So the Hispanic is, you got that. If you're at 25%, you, that, you got that, right? The S is like, how do you elevate the serving, right? How do you actually yeah. serve um, Hispanic, Latinx, Latine population when you weren't historically found it that way? So the serviness framework is people to think about beyond the federal designation, how do you make sense of it? Um, there's two parts of the serviness framework. One is like structurally, what do you have to do? Um, so I'm an organizational theorist. So I talk about structurally, like your mission, your vision, your mm. strategic plan, your diversity plan, your the compositional diversity of your, um, your president, your vice presidents, your deans, your faculty, your staff, all of that is is structures, the curriculum, mm -hmm. what kind of curriculum can you take, um, the support programs, student services, yes. co-curriculum, high impact practices, uh, cultural centers, all of that is structure. Everything, basically. Everything, <laughs> yes. When, when you step on the campus, all of that, all of that. I even in my new book, I, call, I talk about um, physical infrastructure. And so it li literally is. I talk about like the murals on the wall matter, mm. you know, and people are like, let's paint a mural. And I'm like, yes. <laughs> um, because my research, actually my dissertation, people said that they said that the place on campus where there were murals, it felt like an HSI. So I'm like, listen, it does matter to people. Like what it feels like matters to people. Um, so physically, what does it look like? What does it feel like? Um, and so, yeah, to your question about those spaces that are, are doing that, I don't like to give names because I, I don't want it, people to yeah. think there's a model. There's not yeah. a model. There's a <laughs> You lot make of, of it what you, what, you, you, what you will, right? Based on your resources, your population, your infrastructure. But, oh, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> yeah. No, you got it. That's exactly what it is. I say that all the time. I'm like, every HSI can be the best HSI. Because in, in higher ed, everybody wants to be the best something, right? We want to be the best. We want to be the first. We want to be the who knows what. You can all be the best HSI because you can be the best HSI in California, small, private, rural HSI, right? That's mm. different than the large public research HSI, right? Like it's different than New York. It's different than Puerto Rico. It's different than Florida. It's different than Texas, right? Like all of that 
comes into play when it comes to being the best HSIs. Like, where are you located? Where are you situated? What kind of, what's your mission in general as, as an institution? Um, so I very much define it in that way. Exactly how you said is like, yeah, you, you make, you make meaning of it. Um, but the folks that are doing the most progressive work, I will say, um, they are embracing this organizational approach to serving this. So um, hiring more people of color, that's huge, particularly faculty. You need more faculty. Mm -hmm. That one is the biggest barrier right now. Is it's hard to hire faculty of color, apparently. <laughs> it's like, I don't know why. I say apparently because there's a lot of people that you could hire, you're just not. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of people of color with PhDs who could be faculty, uh, researchers, right? Like uh, teaching faculty, like depending on the kind of faculty you want, because every institution has different kind of faculty. Um, they're out there, but you gotta you gotta make that intentional effort to, to hire folks of color. Um, so the hiring of, of folks of color, the the rethinking of the curriculum. I visited one campus and they had me meet with their um, their general ed. Uh, committee. And I was like, oh, what's this going to be about? And they were like, well, you know, our provost wants us to enact liberatory education the way you talk about it. And I was like, oh, dope. So y'all read my book. <laughs> um, because yeah, I talk about liberatory education in there. What is, and, and liberatory from like a Palo Ferrarian sort of liberatory, that education can be um, liberating. Um, and so they're like, we're, here's the different ways we're thinking about. What do you think? Right. I was like, I love it. The fact that you're trying to enact liberatory education in general ed that yes. right there like I'm already on board <laughs> let's go right when is it going to be across the curriculum and the gen ed is the place where it's going to hit the whole curriculum because everybody has to take gen ed um so yeah rethinking curricular structures rethinking um support services right how are we serving the students um yes. My podcast in season three, we're talking about linguistic servingness. We just had a, I recorded an episode with folks talking about serving multilingual people, you know, and that's mm. such a part of HSI because, I mean, you have a good number who are heritage Spanish speakers, but you got a lot of languages, not just Spanish yes. um, in colleges and universities, right? Like yeah. there are many of languages. How do you serve multilingual people rather than do what we do in the US, which is tell people they have to speak English? When are we gonna stop doing that? Because they do that to us K through 12. And then we get to college and we think that that's the only way because we've done it all our whole lives. Colleges and universities actually could be better, right? About like embracing a more multilingual um, approach. And so HSIs are thinking about that. How do we serve multilingual people, heritage speakers who want to get stronger in their heritage language for their careers, right? Like for their, for their advancement, right? Their own social mobility, which is an important outcome for yeah. colleges and universities. We want people to get jobs and become economically mobile. Um, what if they could do it linguistically in multilingual ways, uh, which would advance them even more? Um, so embracing all the ways that, that Latina people show up and thinking about rethinking how we can uh, address educational needs um, through this like much more multidimensional lens. Great, great. I, I, I can't help but think about, I, I have someone that I work with who just filed her dissertation um, and one of the uh, one of the chapters she was looking at the use of languages among uh, Oaxacan uh, folks or Oaxacan Americans here mm -hmm. who are, mm -hmm. uh, who, who speak Zapotec and are trying mm -hmm. to uh, access that language and how for some folks it was so empowering 
that they actually access careers in like uh, translation and interpreting, things that they never would have thought about if they hadn't had access to support services for the, the language part, having access to learn mm -hmm. and keep developing that skill. Uh, anyway, I, I I think I'm so glad that you mentioned these examples because they're all so different. And like you said, I'm, I imagine each institution is different too, that is um, enacting these different types of serving. Mm -hmm. so, yeah. So, um, okay. I, I was going to ask, uh, okay. Yeah. I, I want to talk about your podcast, but first I want to talk about, okay, you make it seem like just do this, just do that. Like just figure it out. <laughs> but I know higher ed, things are not always that easy. So what are some of the challenges? So what are some of the opportunities that you notice HSIs are facing right now in promoting equity and justice, you know, in their own way for minoritized, historically excluded populations? Like, and and what's what are you noticing in terms of trends of how they're evolving? Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. You're right. I tried I it, when I say it, it sounds really easy. <laughs> I'm like, here, I mean, I give you a framework even. You know? <laughs> if you read my book, it's like right there, you know, like, come on, what else do you want me to do? You know, do it. <laughs> um, <laughs> I could come do it, but you got to pay me, you know, no. Um, but that's the reality is the doing is hard, you know, and, and I, and I joke about that, but I also acknowledge all the time, particularly when I give public lectures, I'm like, this is hard work, y'all. I've done it, right? It's not that I haven't done it. I have implemented Title Five grants. I have thought about organizational change. It is really, really hard mm -hmm. and you have to slow down and take it one day at a time, one year at a time. This HSI, becoming HSI, like the way I dream about it is going to take years right for institutions to undo what they've done and do it differently um because that's really what i'm calling for is like do it differently right like let's rethink higher ed um and so there's that right that organizational change takes time and that's how i how i write about this work because it's organizational change um now are we changing to your second point of your question yes um and i'm an eternal optimist so i'm like we can do this right like i am seeing it happen um and i and i admittedly i see it happen and then i see i see like three steps forward and then like mm. two steps back right yeah. like that's the reality too is like it, this is such hard work that that happens um particularly when you have like a champion or a few champions and those champions leave yeah. they take their champion and their knowledge and their and their will and their everything their resources with them and then they go change somewhere else but you're back trying to keep going um which is why I talk about the organizational approach that like you can't rely only on one person because like yeah. that happens right like organizational change cannot be one individual's person's um you know like dream only like everybody's got to be on board with it um but yeah so what are some of the ways that I see um well for one I think just the reality that we're enrolling more people of color is a change right we have to acknowledge that so the fact that in the 1980s, there were very few uh, Hispanic, Latinx, Latina people entering colleges and universities. Like it just wasn't where we were at. Um, and so come the 2000s or so, we start to see a lot more higher increase, right? So in the last 20 years, we've seen that that increase. So does uh, do we change as institutions? Well, yeah, that was a change, right? That took time. Now we have to also acknowledge that uh, people have demanded their way in, right? We have yeah. had people who fought 
so that we could be in colleges and universities. And, and I acknowledge that all the time, right? Like I know people who fought for me so that I could be where I'm at, right? Even at the level to be a full professor with tenure at a UC Berkeley, like that was like, there were people that fought that fought so that I could get that. Um, and people I fought specifically life. at Berkeley too. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. <laughs> yes, to make it full circle, right? Like, yeah, because I mean, you know, 30 years ago, that wasn't the case, right? You weren't seeing Latinas uh, getting full professorships, right? Um, the Latinas fought their way, right? Like our elders, I, I mean, I, th I talk about my scholar elders. I'm like, I know my scholar elders have fought for me, right? I know I can name, right? Like women who have fought so that I can be, and so that my path was easier, actually. Um, it was, right? It was, but but that's because th those fights have, have already taken place, right? And so we're still fighting. We're still fighting our way and we're still fighting different battles. Battles, um, but things do change, right? And so we have to stay hopeful. We have to know that they'll get better. We have to know that um, uh, speaking up matters, that we do need to speak up and we do need to fight those battles, even if we never see the fruits of our own labor. Mm. And I think about that, right? You mentioned, yeah, people fighting at Berkeley, right? Like 1960s, right? Like, was it, you know, all the movements that were going on, some of those folks never saw. They, 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 they don't see what it looks like now um, and how they're, they're, what they did matters to, to those of us now. And what we're doing now is going to matter in 40 years in a different way that we might not see. Mm -hmm. um, but you fight the fight anyways, right? That, that's, that's justice. That, that's the kind of social justice work um, that those of us that actually care and want to make a difference, that we do it for that reason, that we're like, we might not ever see it, um, but we're going we're gonna to fight the good fight anyways. And we know it matters um, for the future right, for the future generation. So, so yes, colleges and universities are changing. These things that I'm talking about, I mean, I document a lot of things that are going on, um, that, that are, are changing, um, that, and then I also write about things that are still happening that are not good for us. Like, you know, one of my most recent articles is about, um, co-authored with one of my doc students about racialized and gendered experiences of Latina faculty at HSIs, that, like, Latinas are experiencing racism, they're experiencing uh, the patriarchy, right? That they're they have very different experiences, not only from from white folks, but from men and men identified yeah. people, male identified people. Um, so women and femmes, trans women, I mean, are having different experiences at, in colleges, and universities, and still having to fight a fight. Yeah. Um, and so we're documenting that as well. That like, yes, change is coming. Yes, change is happening. But also, bad things are happening too. So let's not pretend just because there's a lot of people of color at HSIs, particularly at the undergraduate level, that now racism doesn't live here. Racism still lives here. Yeah. Um, it still lives here amongst the students, even the most diverse population at the student level. There's still racism. There's still anti-Blackness. There's still anti-Indigeneity. You, you mentioned yeah. Indigenous, Latine yes. people. Um, there's folks doing that research. Uh, Gabriela Cova Sanchez was on my uh, podcast season one. She talks about that, right? Uh, Latine indigenous people don't fit into the same construct as domestic born US, right. you know, Latinos um, without any uh, connection to our indigenous roots, right? Yeah, we can say like, oh, I have indigenous roots. We were colonized, but you don't, if we don't know, if you don't know those indigenous roots, you've never been brought up with those. You don't know what that means. That's a different yeah. experience. Um, and so that's happening. The anti-indigeneity, even within the Latino community is happening. Um, so yeah, so it's like, it has to be both. Like here's some 
progress, but also we're not making enough progress when Afro-Latinos and indigenous Latinos mm -hmm. are not having good experiences at the hands of our own people. That's, that's a problem. We need to have those conversations. We need to come into some racial reckoning and some racial yes. healing, and we need to do it fast because it's the reality right now. I'm so glad that you mentioned that um, because that's something that comes up a lot when folks think about even the term Hispanic and how problematic mm -hmm. it is. Um, but also talking about having conversations and having the necessary conversations, you know, brings me to asking you about the podcast and kind of why you decided to start a podcast. I imagine it's another way to keep uplifting um, the voices of, you know, the, the people who are doing this kind of work and in the groundwork and research work. Um, so can you tell us a little bit more about the podcast, about Que Pasa Chisais and what you envision for the future? You gave us a sneak peek of season three, mm -hmm. but what else is to come? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So the podcast, I really um, created the podcast. Uh, so as a researcher, one of my biggest um, like issues I have with research is that we do all this research. Scholars spend all this time. We get grants. We spend money. We collect data. We fund graduate students. We write. We go through the review process <laughs> over and over, revise and resubmit and resubmit again and resubmit again. And then our article gets published, you know, four years later after it started, like literally from the start of an article, you know, from the start of a research project until it gets published. And like a hundred people access it. You know, it's like nobody's even accessing that level of research, not because they don't want to, but because it's inaccessible. Yeah. Uh, you have to pay to access journals, right? Like peer reviewed journals. There are very few that are open access. Um, this article I just mentioned about the racialized gendered experiences. I, we, I, pay, I paid as a researcher because I had the grant money, extra money to make it open access. So other people mm -hmm. wouldn't have to pay. You know, like every person should have to pay $25 to access an article. Like that doesn't make any sense, right? Yeah. Um, and so that- <laughs> Not every scholar can afford to pay to make it open access either. Yeah, I was just trying to get rid of my my grant money. So <laughs> so I acknowledge that privilege too, right? Because I was trying to like run out this grant. So I was like, well, shoot, let's just use it for open. Let's use it for good. You know, like yeah. I'm all about that. Like let's use the, let's use funds for good. And it's an, it's a, it's an accessible, acceptable use of uh, grant funding to do that. I highly recommend anybody that can do it to do it. Um, but yeah, that's a privilege also to be able to even make, and it's not cheap to make your article open access. I'll say that. <laughs> so my, my doc student, was like what and I was like it's okay it's okay it's all it's all good baby we'll get it we got it <laughs> but so we made it open access and uh and still it might not be accessed by by the masses right and so for me um get passage size was like let's make it for the masses right I want yes. to make research available for people the other thing was I was seeing in various ways in my own you know as a scholar doing different work with different communities that the practitioners who are doing the HSI work were also not accessing the research. So I'm like, so I'm writing Ooh. all of these articles, books, frameworks. I'm giving you the framework and you're not even reading it. And I'm not blaming you for that. I wrote an article about that too. I was like, I don't blame you. <laughs> that's hilarious. I wrote an article about that too. <laughs> I did write an article about it. I do. Like, that's where I take, like, I am a writer, right? So I, take it to the to the I would say the pen and the paper but you know we all know it's not pen it's it's laptop right so I yeah. take it to the keyboard and I write about it right I'm like okay listen I know you're busy I got it 
I'm busy too. So how can I make the research more accessible to you? Mm. Right. And so the people that I want to access my research, because I do research so that it actually makes a difference, right? That's where the scholar activism comes in that like, I'm not doing research so that I get money or I get paid or I get book deals. Like I, that's not why I do research. I do research so that it actually makes a difference. So yes. that we can actually create, right? And like, not everybody has that in mind. They just want to get promoted. They just want to get the grants or whatever. I'm like, no, I want to make a difference. Um, believe me, in comparison to a lot of scholars that have full professorship right now, I don't have that big grant money. I use pennies right, to get, to get the research, right, I'm like, I'll do the research on pennies and get it out there, right, like, I'll do what I got to do, I fund my own podcast, um, because I want to make the research accessible to people, so Que Pase HSIs is the space where people can, as you know, with the podcast, listen for free, and learn about what's going on, so that was the biggest thing, is like, um, making research accessible, the other thing was, like you said, uh, lifting voices, right? Like there's lots of voices. Um, for me, it's providing space, right? For folks who are doing really awesome work at HSIs, but they aren't writing about it because that's not their job. They're doing mm. other things, right? Like writing about it and writing an article about it or writing a book about it is not what they're doing right now. And, and so it's like, okay, spend an hour with me and tell me what you're doing and tell of all of our listeners and let them learn with you. Um, so it was a way to yeah provide that space and that platform for folks who are doing really awesome work. Um, let them share it with folks and really sharing best practices. Like I just want us all to learn from each other and people have a lot of great ideas and a lot of them are not mine, right? Like I've written about a lot of HSI stuff and there's a lot of people that I have done <laughs> not only written, but done really mm -hmm. cool HSI stuff that I never even thought of. I'm like, I love that. Mm -hmm. Let's share it with others, you know? And so the podcast, Que Pase HSI, really is that, like making knowledge accessible to the people who need it. Right. And I mean, yeah, what what do you envision doing with the podcast? Like you're already doing a lot. I mean, it's, it's a whole project of, you know, sharing the work to the masses it's a lot of work I know I'm doing it I'm doing yes. the podcast <laughs> too but future future Kipasa HSI like what is the vision of the podcast um is it is it so that more folks can uh take these best practices put them into practice and continue doing the work of 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 the becoming process of the servingness of the implementing all that um but you know, yeah, what what else do you imagine doing with the podcast in the future? I I, I don't even know. I'm like, is this going to be a continuous thing or? You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, for sure, going to continue to do it. Going to continue to offer it. It's interesting. This season was a little different because the first two seasons, like I had all like my HSI scholar friends or like the top people in my mind, and so season three, I was like okay, I kind of, you know, I've already provided that platform for all the people, mm. all the awesome people I, I wanted to share the space with. Um, and so I started asking people, right? And even, you know, when when folks that come on the show, they recommend people. Mm. Um, and so there's a good number of folks that I had never even met, but people recommended them and they're like, oh, this would be a great person. Um, they're doing good work. And I'm like, awesome. So I am now extending my network, meeting really cool people, doing really awesome things. Um, but yes, continuing to, to, to share the space and continuing to share the knowledge um, is definitely in the foreseeable future. Um, I think some other things like people are trying to give me feedback on how they're using it. 
So like one Um, person like emailed me and they were like, yeah, we are using your podcast as part of our professional development offerings. And I was like, oh, right. Like, so they're, they're using it as part of their professional development that like folks have to like listen to the podcast as part of their professional development. I was like, okay. And the only reason they emailed me is because one of the episodes was not, they couldn't access it on my website. Um, cause it's available in a lot of places, mm-hmm. but they were accessing it from my, my own website. Um, and so I was like, oh, okay, that must've been, you know, we didn't link it right. The right way, as you know, you know, got to do yes. a lot of linking and different, mm-hmm. you know, in order to make sure it's, it goes live, right. Every platform has its different ways that you got to link it and whatnot. Um, and so even hearing that, like, then I start thinking, okay, well, how does it become a part of a professional development series, right? Like, do I make it that, right? How do I make it um, yeah. um, marketable, marketing it in that way, right? That it actually is that that level of learning. Um, I mean, I have a vision of going through it and, and just listening to all the episodes again and writing out all the themes, right? There's so many themes that come yes. out. <laughs> um, and so it's like, Wow, you know, and people tell me, I mean, people tell me they are like, I listen to like the same episode like four or five times, right? Like I listen one time, the next time I take notes, yeah. the next time I listen again, just to hear it again and make sure I heard it yeah. correctly, right? Like they're they're they really are accessing it for the knowledge, right? It is a, a knowledge space. Um, so yeah, I think it's a good question. And I think I am still thinking about that. <laughs> I can already envision it and not just for professional development, but in a bunch of different spaces, whether it's, you know, Chicanx, Latinx departments, higher ed departments, you name it. And also like I can envision your book three, four, five. I don't know how many books you have, but like whatever the, the next number of books are, <laughs> can be kind of inspired by some of these conversations that you're having. So it's very, very exciting just like how much you can do with this and also the increased accessibility to, like you said, for folks who aren't like able to access the paywall stuff or who aren't always on their computer actively reading academic articles, they can pop some headphones on and listen to the work Mm -hmm. that you're sharing. So that's really, really great. Yeah. All right. We're getting close to To wrapping up, so I have a couple more questions. I wanted to ask you for advice for first-gen BIPOC students in particular, for those that are either enrolled in HSIs or are considering attending HSIs for grad school. So maybe they're at an HSI now, maybe they're not, and they're thinking, okay, that's going to be the next place I go to. What What are some things you want them to keep in mind? Yeah. Oh, that's a good question. Um, I mean, so I'll start because my research brain is always in the research. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm going to start by saying that the graduate population at HSIs does not mirror the undergraduate population. So, Mm. and that article, yeah, yeah. So let's start with that. (laughs) Yeah. So, and me and my grad student wrote that article. So I know the data. We have clear data. The data show that uh, so first of all, HSI is an undergraduate construct. So we have to acknowledge that, that you become an HSI because your undergraduate population is his 25% or more Hispanic, Latinx, Latine. Um, your graduate population doesn't have to, neither does your faculty, neither does your administration. There's no other requirement for, that's the lack of accountability mm. uh, at the federal government level, right? The federal government doesn't hold HSIs accountable for anything besides 
those two percentages, right? The low income and the and the and the Hispanic, and then also uh, if you get the grants, and you know you have to report that you what you're doing with the grant money, right? That's yeah. the the level of accountability. Um, and so a majority of HSIs are not actually graduate HSIs, first of all. So only I think the number is like maybe forty percent of all HSIs are even graduate, right? So that knocks out yeah. a good at least sixty percent or so, and that's an estimate. It's something it's something around there, at least forty percent, um, but not much more than that, and so. So a lot of HSIs are not even going to be where you could go to get mm. a graduate degree, either a master's or doctoral level. Um, so, but then those, let's say it's 40% or so, um, a majority of them are not HSIs at the graduate level. So you're mm. entering an institution that even when you get to your program is still predominantly white. So the undergraduate population might be all thriving and diverse and all that. And then you went to your, you know, your graduate degree in let's say history, and it's probably pretty white right? Like the faculty yeah. and other grad students are also white. And maybe the curriculum, probably the curriculum. I mean, I named history and one of the white, whitest colonial spaces on any college campus, right? Unless you're taking it through, uh, you know, ethnic studies lens, you're getting the colonial problematic history of yeah. higher ed, I mean, of, of, of the U.S. and beyond, right? Depending mm -hmm. on what, what, what history you're studying. Um, and so it becomes very white again, really quickly. Um, so I think that's important to acknowledge that HSIs are still not HSIs at the graduate level necessarily. Um, some are a little bit better and then it's program-based, right? Mm -hmm. So depending on your program, like some programs are a lot more diverse, right? Mm -hmm. um, but that's like one by one. <laughs> it's like a graduate program yeah. by graduate program. Um, so I would say doing that research, if you are interested in entering a graduate program um, that is more diverse, understanding that like you still have to do that sort of level of divert, uh, of research into the diversity of the student population. Ask that question. I'm a graduate, as a graduate advisor, right? Like as somebody who comes to me to get advice on in, on the process, right? For in, uh, working with me or entering our graduate program, ask, right? Ask faculty, ask the, per the person who oversees the program what the diversity is. Um, and they will tell you. And ask to talk, talk to people of color because they will tell you, students will tell you um, that it's a terrible place, right? That like, no, don't come here. Um, oh yeah, that one Latina you wanted to work with. Oh yeah, she's leaving to Berkeley this mm. year. Don't come, right? Like that, yes. that happens, mm -hmm. right? That happens all the time, right? Like people applying to go work with one person and then they're like, bet I'm out, right? And they're not, they should tell you that. <laughs> I told my person who was coming to work with me very early on, right? The, the doc student who was coming to work with me, um, I am leaving probably. <laughs> it's like 90% chance I'm leaving. I need to tell you that because I don't want you to enter um, this space without the, knowing the truth, right? Not everybody tells the truth. Um, so ask, right? Ask those kind of questions. Ask what kind of climate it is. Ask what kind of, what the, the experiences are of people of color, because otherwise you're entering a space thinking it's going to be all great. Yeah. Yay, I'm at an HSI. It's going to be amazing. And then it's not. Um, the graduate population and the graduate uh, curriculum, I'll say, uh, pretty much across the board has not changed. Um, so don't go in expecting expecting that. So I'll stop there. <laughs> I mean, once again, you're you're reminding us that it's it's all about the individual programs, so not just the mm -hmm. individual institutions, but even more so the in individual departments and programs within them that make all the difference, especially for graduate students. So thank you for that. Um, do you have any other closing words? 
guests and if not how can others reach you how can others follow you your work support your work yes yeah um I mean, I guess in, in also the spirit of like femturing, right? <clears throat> like I said, I, I mean, I am on the receiving end now, right? That, that, um, that process of going through graduate school and going into uh, either master's or doctoral programs, uh, there is a lot of work to do. We're not creating a college going, uh, or not a college going, a graduate going culture, right? So I think that would be my big word first is like, there is a program for you, right? Like get into those programs if you are are trying to apply um, and get paid. Uh, don't go anywhere, particularly if you're a person of color that that doesn't fund you. Um, higher ed needs to be funding. If we want more diversity, we need to pay people. Yes. <laughs> we need to pay them what they're worth. And that's yes. everyone. That's graduate students. That's faculty. That's staff. All of us. Because they should be paying for the fact that we're bringing our, our cultural knowledge, our community cultural wealth comes into the institution with us. We are, are single-handedly changing institutions just by entering the spaces. Um, so yeah, so go get, go get those programs, go get that, get those funds, go work with those folks you want to work with. Like do, do that, right. Um, get the advice, follow podcasts like this, follow, you know, Instagram. I know there's Instagram accounts, influencers, people who are helping particularly grad students of color figure out or demystify mm -hmm. the, the process, right. Cause it is, a, it's a process and there is an unwritten curriculum right? There is totally an unwritten curriculum yes. to how to get into and through graduate school. So making sure you're accessing whatever, whether it be through a podcast or through a book, those books are written too, right? Like get the book, get the podcast, follow the influencers. Um, I follow the influencers on Instagram just because I like to learn too, right? And I've been, you know, I don't, I don't need like how to write a, you know, the, the personal statement for the grad school, but I just like, you know, I just like supporting and, and learning too of like, yeah, what is, you know, how are people perceiving this process that I'm on the receiving end now? Yeah. Um, and, 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 and also doing the work to break down a lot of things like, we don't need we don't need GRE scores, right? Like we've fought that fight. Um, that fight has been won in a lot of places. Good, we got rid of GRE scores. That doesn't mean that people now all of a sudden are totally uh, opening off the doors to all people of color because they still are using other metrics um, to uh, allow people into the institution, right, or into their graduate programs. Um, so I sit on committees with those folks who want to know about their the GPAs and the mm. and the and the what schools did they go to and the the training and the pedigree and I'm like what does this person want to do they want to work they want to you know do equity and justice work cool I'm, I'm with it right they did they struggled in undergrad cool many of us did right that's I'm good with that let's keep talking through right like that's not the end all be all um like those those normative metrics right so so just wanted to add that right from a sort of femme touring perspective um but other than that you said, how do people reach me? Uh, yes, I'm on social media. So you can call me, follow me on social media, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn. Those are the spaces I spend most of time in um, at Gina Ann Garcia and also my website, GinaAnnGarcia.com. So yeah, I'm accessible. Find me. I'm happy to interact <laughs> with folks. DM me. It goes down in the DMs for reals. Like DM me. I always respond to DMs faster than emails even. Um, I, 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 sh I, I should have been DMing you. <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? If you email me, I'm like, oh, maybe, wait. I'm like, what is the thought of Gina and Garcia? I don't 
I'm gonna send her a formal memo. <laughs> nah, I'm telling you, it goes down in the DM. Yes, people DM me all the time, and that's how I be like. And then they'll start getting technical, and I'm like, "Can you email me?" But like, you're already on my mind now, right? Now you're on my radar, so I'm like, "Okay, yeah, remind me that you were in my DM so I can remember." Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, that's definitely D- DM scholars, DM folks. I love that. Uh, DM to. scholars. <laughs> <laughs> we respond. Well, at least I do. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, um, we're going to link all of that in the show notes for sure. So folks can can reach you. I just want to thank you once again. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Dr. Gina, for sharing all of your wealth of knowledge and experience and wisdom. Y todo. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much for joining me in the Grad School Fem Touring Podcast. If you like what you heard, here are four ways you can support the show. The first is to make sure you're subscribed and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. The second way is to get your copy of my free Grad School Fem Touring Resource Kit, which includes essential information to prepare for and navigate grad school. You can access it at the link in today's show notes. The third way to support my show is to follow me on social media. You can find me on Instagram with the handle at Grad School Fem Touring and on LinkedIn by searching my name. The last way to show your love is to sign up to work with me via my Grad School Femtoring Academy, my group coaching program for first-gen BIPOCs seeking to work on their personal growth and gain sustainable productivity skills. You can learn more at gradschoolfemtoring.com slash academy. Thanks again for listening and until next time. <laughs>